for open and receptive hearts as we come to the word of God. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth in faith and love and the strength to follow on the path you set before us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. A reading taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 10, beginning with verse 14. The Gospel of the Lord. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Riley. I don't really remember what we were arguing about. I just knew that she was wrong and I was right. I had just told her that she was a heretic again. And I was pretty angry. Uh, Again, I don't remember what it was because it kept happening. And every time the pattern was the same. Every time I would try to make a clear statement of biblical truth and she would say something that seemed moderate or compromised or wishy-washy or nuanced or subtle. And it drove me nuts. I had been a Christian almost a year, so I knew everything that I was talking about. And, uh, and, and, and every single time, it was the same pattern. Because the truth is, you would not have liked me as a young Christian. Uh, I had come from a completely unchurched background, and my conversion was a pretty radical one that maybe I'll tell you about someday. And in my nascent Christian mind, there were two ways to live your life. There was man's way, which I had known all about, and there was God's way that I was learning about from the Bible. And, and because I assumed that there were basically two poles, two ways to live your life, I was trying to get as far away from this one as possible and as close to this one as possible. And so I, I actually began to develop some really some views that today I would look back and consider extremist. Uh, you know, because my thought is if you're going to go this way, you need to go all the way. No compromise. You want it, there are two ways to build your life. You need to go all the way over here. No compromise. And therefore, if it was a sin to get drunk, it must also be a sin to drink. Uh, you know, I certainly believe that no Christian could ever smoke a tobacco product. Uh, seminary fixed me of that. Uh, you know, I, I felt like people who go to churches aren't real Christians, not like the people who were in my campus ministry where I had become a Christian. And on every perspective, I would go as far one direction as, as I could. And these extreme positions came to me because of this assumption that there's God's way and, and man's way, and those are the only two options. Uh, there's a choice between unbelief and belief, irreligion and religion. And I was tripped up because everything, therefore, became a black and white issue. And every position was either good or evil. And if there are only these two poles within your paradigm, then you're going to want to go as far as you can toward God's way. And yet, what I came to learn as others taught me to better understand the gospel and to better understand scripture, I came to see that there were not two basic ways to live your life, but rather three. 
It's said that the Berber North African church father, Tertullian, around the year 200, said that just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel is always standing between these two thieves of the gospel, two opposite errors. On the one hand, human religion, and on the other, the way of the world. It's a third way. We're going to look at that today. We're going to read Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 8 through 11, and we're going to talk about these three ways to build your life. Man's way, religion's way, and the gospel as a third way. This is the word of the Lord through the Apostle Paul, Galatians 4, beginning in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts upon you. What do we see here? We see three ways. The first is the way that they had come from, which was the world's way. These had been pagans. And he says in verse 8, writing to these ex-pagan Christians in the churches in Galatia, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. These not-gods were, of course, the various pagan deities that they had worshipped. They had been pagans. And, and he calls them in verse 9, uses, uses the Greek term stoicheia. And there's a lot of disagreement as to how to translate the phrase. The original New International Version, what we have in our pew Bibles, I believe translates it principles. Uh, when you follow the principles of this world, the NIV now, the new version, translates it as forces of this world. In verse 3, Paul spoke of them as the, the stoicheia of the cosmos. The ESV translates it as the elementary principles of this world. What is it that they were following? The Greek term here simply means the elements. Earth, wind, fire, relationships, people, things. The elements of the, the cosmos. Uh, to understand what Paul is saying, it helps to, to understand something about Greek religion because these were Greeks. And the Greeks, you understand, had a God for everything. They had gods for all of the basic elements of the universe. In, in antiquity, there were gods for the earth. There were gods of wind. There was a god of fire. The elements of the universe were all aligned with their sp- specific deity. And uh, they there were gods for the moon, and there were gods of the stars, and gods of agriculture, and gods of food. There were gods of wine. There were gods of partying. There were gods of sex and love and beauty. There were gods of war. And Paul calls these not gods, and he calls them miserable stoicheia. That is, he's identifying them as the element of the universe with which each god was aligned. These weak gods that pagans uh, 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 worshipped. Uh, he's saying... You used to trust in earth or wind or fire or agriculture or sex. Uh, and the God aligned with it. Paul is asking, you know, uh, why are you turning to the... Why did, you, why did you worship these if they are, quote, not gods? These not gods represented whatever a person lived for. You see, most people didn't make offerings to multiple gods all over the place. They would, you know, offer sacrifice to the god that was associated with whatever they sought in life. So if you were a sailor, you would, of course, offer offerings to Poseidon, to the god of the sea, because he was the one you were trusting in to get you safely to your destination. If you were a farmer, you would offer sacrifice to 
to, to gods of agriculture. You know, if you were a merchant, you would offer sacrifice to the gods of luck. If you sought to be desired and sought sexual fulfillment or romance, you would offer sacrifice to the gods of romance. It was a transactional relationship. Nobody was worshiping these Greek gods in the way that we talk about worshiping the God of the Bible. You know, nobody wanted to get close to Poseidon. Nobody wanted a personal relationship with a god of war or a god of the sea. And if you were making a sacrifice to Aphrodite, it's not Aphrodite you wanted to get close to. It's transactional. You paid her so that she would give you what you really want in life or who you really wanted in life. If you're worried about your crops, your crops are your livelihood. The crops are what are going to make you successful in the future if the harvest comes in. And so you pay off the god of agriculture. It's not that you're trying to have a relationship with him. Uh, it's like a, a, Carnatic, a, a Carnatic priest. I, I read an interview. Somebody interviewed some Carnatic priests in the southwest of, of India um, you know, Hindu temple, and, uh, and, and asked that they were very dutiful and faithful and, and, and took very seriously the God that they worshipped. And, and then the, uh, the interviewer said, um, do you love this God? And they didn't know how to answer. He said, well, do you want to get close to this God? And they were like, absolutely not. Uh, it was something transactional in nature. We we offer something to a God because it's something we want and we hope that we get that. But what we're really worshiping is not the God, but the element, <laughs> Paul is saying, the element of this cosmos that we really want and desire and long for. It's the world's way. It means you can worship anything. You can worship your desirability. You can worship your financial success. Anything can be treated as a God. Anything can become the basis for your functional heart religion. It's the way of the world, and it's what the Bible calls idolatry, which is something that we put in place of God. Idolatry is, is taking something that's good, because all of the elements of the world are good. Agriculture is good. Sex, as God designed it, is good. Uh, you know, being successful in business is a good thing, but it's taking something good and making it something ultimate. A career is a calling from God. It's a good thing, but when you over-desire that career and put it in the place of God, it becomes an idol, and the Bible says you therefore become its slave. If you're willing to sin to advance your career, it's an idol. If you're willing to turn against God to protect a relationship, then that relationship or whatever you're looking to that relationship to give you has functionally become an idol, a substitute God, a not God. If you're willing to disobey God in order to advance yourself financially, then money or success has become a not God for you that you are worshiping, just like the pagans had worshipped their not gods. If you're willing to sin in order to advance your personal comfort, then comfort has become a heart idol. Functionally, it's what you're trusting in as your real Lord and your real Savior. Whatever point you're willing to turn from God to something else, that's the point at which you are violating the first and greatest commandment by having another God other than the Lord. It's the basis for every act of unfaithfulness. Idolatry is always there when the Apostle John in 1 John uh, talks about living in light of the life of God and the light of God and, and the holiness of God and walking with him. He, at the very end of his first letter, John says, and so guard yourself against idolatry. And people look at it they say, okay, this is one of two things. Either the Apostle John was the worst author in human history because he introduces a completely new thought in the very last ver- verse of his letter, or 
that last verse is actually what he's been talking about all the way through. Because whenever you're talking about walking with God and living in light of the gospel, you are talking about staying away from and guarding your heart against idolatry. Because idolatry is always there. Whatever commandment you're breaking, it's because you've already broken that first commandment by having a not God in the place of the Lord. Uh, it's why it's not sufficient just to look at the surface sins. Like somebody comes to my office and say, Greg, I've got a problem. I, I have a, a problem with lying and uh, I need help. What should I do? And, and the answer is so simple, pastorally. I got a PhD in this. You need to stop lying. <laughs> and you think, wait a minute, that's not good enough. <laughs> There's a heart issue going on and it could be any of a number of heart issues. Um, it's not sufficient. It doesn't get in, inside. I want to know why you're lying. What need are you fulfilling? What real idol are you bowing down to and worshiping that, that you advance by, by, by saying fabrications? If you, if you love to tell stories that are really interesting so that people will think that you're an interesting person and admire you, then I want to talk about why you need admiration from man when you've got it from God. Why would you be willing to, to, to bow down to that as if it's something better? Uh, maybe you, you lie on your income taxes. Okay, I want to know why you lie on your income taxes. Maybe it's because you're, you're terrified for the future and you live in a constant state of fear and insecurity and you don't, God, you can't see him, you can't hug him, you can't feel him, you can't quantify him, you don't really know for certain he's there and so you're going you're gonna to cheat a little bit. You're going to lie a little bit. But what's really going on inside of you, that need for emotional security through money? See, the lying is not the issue. The lying is the symptom. I listened to one pastor talking about how he and his wife experience each other's, you know, shading of the truth as happens within a marriage. You know, when you've been married to somebody for decades, you just sort of catch each other in all sorts of lies. And uh, you let your guard down. The other person is always there, he says. They're, they're part of the woodwork. You don't even think about the, their presence. They're with you. And so you'll, you'll get off the phone and your life, wife will look at you and say, that's not really true. And he says, we lie, my wife and I, for different reasons. His pastor says, I will never lie to avoid inconveniencing myself, but I will lie to avoid making someone else feel uncared for. They'll call me and they'll ask me if I'm done with a particular project and I'll just say, oh, oh, I'm, I'm just on it right now. I'll send it right over. And when in fact, I completely forgot about the project and haven't given them or it a single thought since. But I don't want to hurt them I don't want them to think that I don't care about them. And so that's the context, he says, in which I am most likely to lie. But he says, my wife is just the opposite. She will never lie because she doesn't want to hurt somebody's feelings. She is more likely to lie in order to avoid being inconvenienced. Someone calls her up and asks her to be at some event, and she says, oh, I can't, I have a wedding that weekend, and there's, there's a wedding rehearsal that night. And she'll hang up the phone, and I'll look at her and say, you know you don't have to be at that wedding rehearsal. So what's going on here? Why is it, he asks, that we both have the same pattern of sinning by lying, but at completely different times and in different situations? He says, I hope you can see that there's something more going on beneath the surface. It's not just that we sin because we're sinners. Every time we sin against God, we're doing it because there's something else at that moment inside our heart that is functioning as a savior for us. At that moment, there is something that is functioning as a hope instead of Jesus Christ. There's something else that you're, you're, you're looking to. You're, you're breaking this first commandment or else you wouldn't be doing that. With, with, with me, he says, what's going on is I need to give up my need for approval. With my wife, she needs to be willing to give up her independence. 
because he says, I won't stop lying until I'm free from my need for man's approval, and my wife won't stop lying until she's free from her need for independence. Approval, it's a good thing. Independence is a good thing. They're blessings from God, but they can become idols when we treat them as functional saviors. And the result, Paul says, is slavery to the thing you serve. He says, you were slaves to these things. When you worship your desirability and you sacrifice to look perfect and to be desired, it's going to keep you in a state of perpetual slavery, always worrying about how you look, always saving up for the next procedure, always sacrificing your comfort and even your health in order to look a certain way, in order to get that desirability. And when you grow old and you lose that body, it is not going to forgive you. You can build your identity on a career. You can sacrifice your marriage to get ahead. And you can sacrifice your children to get ahead. And you're sacrificing your health to get ahead and your career. And you're moving up and you're the bright shining star. You're the corporate wonder boy until someone notices that you padded your resume in order to get there. And then you find yourself called into the vice president's office on a Friday at 4 p.m. And there's an armed guard escorting you out with a box with all your belongings. And you put that career above God, and you sacrificed everything for it. And on the day that career comes to an end, you will become a zero. That God will not forgive you when you fall. You will be its slave, and it will abuse you. You worship the basic elements of the cosmos. They are not gods, Paul says, and therefore you became their slave. It's the way of the world to worship the things of this world, the not-gods, the elements of the cosmos. But there is an alternative that we see because we see the way of the world, but we also see the way of religion. These Galatians were being tempted to turn to a moralistic, kind of Judaistic form of religion. In verse 10 and verse 11, Paul observes, says, you're observing special days and months and seasons and years. These are the case law from the law of Moses. He says, you're doing all this religious stuff, and I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. What do we notice about religion's way in contrast to the world's way? Religion's way is focused on law. This kind of religion focuses on biblical principles because it assumes that by applying the right biblical principle in any situation, you will be sanctified and will become more like God. We call it legalism because it focuses on God's law, on legal details, on rules, on what's right and what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, what proper procedure is in a certain situation. And, and, and don't hear me wrong, there are times when Christians, we have to look at the Bible and say, what does God say? He, does, he doesn't give ten suggestions. You know, it is his law. But, but with moralistic religion, the focus is not on the lawgiver, but on the law itself. The focus is on what we do. You see, the gospel, the focus is, is on, on God's grace that drives us to want to be sensitive to God's heart. Um, but religion's way, it's focused on the law. Another thing about religion's way is we can notice it's focused on what we do. It puts the focus on us instead of on God and, and, and what he's done for us. Notice how the emphasis here with the Galatians, Paul draws out about this teaching they were receiving. It's, it's all about what days they observe as holy days and holy weeks and holy months and holy years, Sabbaths, uh, what we do, our religious practices, our actions, our behaviors. Religion is, is, is focused uh, on law, but it's also focused on what we do. And a third thing is it's focused on externals. Notice also that, that here... You know, they're not talking about matters of the heart. 
The focus is not here on purity of motivation. They're arguing over what days off they take. This is not about loving God more or caring more for other people or having motives that are sensitive towards God's heart for the lost. Nobody ever gets legalistic about gentleness. I've never seen anybody become legalistic about humility. That's a hard issue. People don't become legalistic about kindness or about sensitivity. I've never seen anybody become self-righteous about meekness or coveting because these are internal heart things that are really hard to deal with. No, it's all about the externals. It's about law. It's about what we do. It's about externals, and it's also about optics because its purpose is to mark us out as being visibly different. I'm one of the Christians who has a Sabbath week every month. I am so different from you. Look at me. Yeah, its purpose is to say, look at how I schedule my time. Look at how I don't work on Saturday like everybody else. Maybe it's how we dress differently or how we do our hair differently. Maybe it's the terminology that we use to describe certain conditions. Maybe it could be any a number of things. We can be legalistic about anything, but it's always a way to visibly mark me out as being one of the good people. Um, and fifthly, um, religion seeks to make spiritual growth measurable. If growth in Christ-likeness can be attained by your schedule, by what days off you take, well, that's something you can measure. You can measure how many minutes a day you pray. You can measure whether or not you've said certain words or not said certain words. You can measure whether you go to certain kinds of movies or not. You can measure what terminology you use in your daily speech. You can measure whether you read your Bible this morning. And I hope you do read your Bible because that's a really good thing. That's how God speaks to us. But it's measurable that I accomplished it. And that's what legalism and religion tends to do is it it wants to be able to measure my spiritual growth so that I can feel like I'm making progress. It's hard to measure gentleness. It's hard to measure love. It's hard to measure meekness or kindness or respect. It's hard to measure whether or not you love God and your neighbor. Legalistic human religion seeks to make spiritual growth measurable. It's focused on law, on what we do, on externals, on optics, and on making spiritual growth measurable. And that's why the Galatians were being tempted to move back into this kind of moralistic religion. It's religion's way. And yet what's shocking is this. This is the big point. Paul says that religious self-righteousness is the same thing as what you were doing when you were pagans bowing down to Aphrodite. It's shocking. Did you pick up on that? It's counterintuitive. It's it's not what any of us were expecting. It's a completely different paradigm. We tend to think of the world on one side and religion on the other and the gospel maybe sleeping somewhere in between. But Paul is saying that those two poles are you doing the exact same thing at the heart level. Did you notice? It's in verse 9. He says it. But now, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable principles? They weren't turning back to Aphrodite. They weren't turning back to Zeus. They were turning to a legalistic self-righteous, you know, rigorous Judaism. But he says it's the same thing. You're turning back to it. The Galatians had turned from pagan gods, the elements of the cosmos, and now they're being tempted to moralistic religion. And it's astounding that Paul equates them. Tim Keller explains it this way. He says, before they were pagans, they had many noble virtues, but by biblical standards, they were copulating with everybody. By biblical standards, they were the great unwashed, and they really were worshiping idols. They were bowing down to statues and stabbing each other in the back. Paul talks about the kind of life they came from, hating one another and being hated. 
Now remember what it is that they're being tempted to go to. These teachers are telling them that if they really want to be accepted by God, they have to embrace biblical legal moralism. Before, they were copulating in the streets, and now they're about to go into an absolutely rigorous program of utter obedience to biblical details as a way of seeking to earn God's favor. And Paul says you're going right back to where you were. How could he say that? Do you see this? It's astounding that Paul would say that you can be incredibly biblical and incredibly moral, having your right doctrine and being right with absolute pristine morality, scrupulous, sexually pure, and you'd be just as enslaved as when you were fornicating all over the place. Why? Keller says it's because Paul is saying you can either be your own Lord and Savior through making an idol of your work or of sex or of your body or your family and all of these idolatrous ways you're being your own Lord and Savior or you can get moral and get religious and do the doggone same thing. Instead of following Christ, you're following Christianity. And it's just as enslaving. Verse 9, do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Some of us have seen how enslaving human religion can be, whether you're speaking of the Taliban in Afghanistan or Pakistan or the crippling culture of American fundamentalism or the legalistic rules of ultra-Orthodox Judaism. You can see slavery in religion. The problem, of course, is that with that kind of slavery, you don't know that you're dead. You think that you're alive, but it's religion's way. But I said there are three ways here. There is the world's way, which is to bow down to the element of this cosmos, the things of this world, and worship them, and you will end up a slave. And there is religion's way, which is also a way of of saving yourself as your own Lord and Savior by what you do, and you will also end up a slave. But we see presented here the gospel as a third way distinct from the world and distinct from human religion. It's what Paul is calling them to remember. He says, verse 9, now you know God, or rather are known by God. That's the gospel. You know God now. To know God is to have a relationship with him. It's different from having a relationship with Poseidon. You have a God who who is far larger and far more powerful and far more intimidating and far more holy than Poseidon, but who is also far more loving and self-sacrificial in committing himself to die for your sake so that he can enter into a relationship and know you, to be known by God. You have a God with whom you you can draw near J.I. Packer says it this way. He says, What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be but to know God? It's precisely what the gospel has opened up for us. Even more than knowing God, Paul explains, is you are known by God now. He says, now that you know God, or rather are known by God How much of our sin comes from a longing to be known? How many unhealthy relationships do we endure because we long to be known? How many lines have we crossed because we long to be known? How much inappropriate intimacy have we experienced because we long to be known? How many fantasies have we developed because we feel like imaginary intimacy is better than not being known at all? 
the term to be known speaks of intimacy. It has the same connotations in the Bible. It's like in Genesis when the Bible says that, 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 that Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore him a son. It's like when the prophet Amos talks, speaks, uh, God speaks to, to Israel through Amos and says, you only have I known of all the peoples of the earth. It's that, that implication of, of deep intimacy, someone who knows everything about you and yet, yet embraces you in all of the nakedness and the shame and the guilt and the problems and the brokenness, nevertheless embraces you and knows you in all of that and accepts you. No one has done more exegetical work on the meaning of being known by God in the Bible than Brian Rosner of Moore College. And Rosner argues that being known by God is roughly equivalent to three things. Belonging to God. That's absolute security. Being loved or chosen by God. That he sees you in your nakedness and moves toward you instead of away from you. Moves toward you with compassion. And thirdly, being a child or a son of God and therefore having the security of having a parent who will never leave you. Dave Furman says it this way. He says, God knows you and he knows what you're going through in your darkest trial. This is a truth I must come back to every day that God knows every time I bump my tender elbow on the side of a door or cry out in agony. He sees every accident. He knows when my leg pain is so bad that I lie awake in bed for hours. He is keenly aware of my feelings of depression and the hopelessness that often rage within my heart. He knows you and your trials. He knows each of your chemotherapy appointments. He was there weeping with you when you lost a loved one. He knows your every injury and every irritation. He sees your despair and he knows how you feel. Now that you know God, or rather are known by God, he knows you. He's saying, I see you, I see everything, and I love you. To be known by God. There's an invisible force at the center of this universe, behind it, under it, beyond it, driving a billion stars and a billion galaxies, a billion light years away. A powerful, defining force and intelligence that we call God. And that God is intimately defining each and every leaf on every tree in all the earth, making every tree unique, no two alike, every one of them resplendent and beautiful. There is a power and an intelligence behind all of this that's terrifying. And yet that intelligence has made himself known in love to you. He has seen you. He knows what you've gone through. And he has chosen you. If you are in Christ, he has chosen you and claimed you as his bride because you're his people, you're his family, you're beloved, you're known by God. Now that you know God, or rather are known by God, the Lord Jesus in John chapter 10 says, I know my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. 1 Corinthians 13, the great love passage. Paul says, Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Packer says this. He says, There's no peace like the peace of those whose minds are possessed with full assurance that they have known God and God has known them and that this relationship guarantees God's favor to them in life through death 
and on forever. What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven in the palm of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, and there is no moment when his eye is off of me or his attention distracted from me and no moment, therefore, when God's care falters. John Piper says this, deeper than knowing God is being known by God because what defines us as Christians is not most profoundly that we have come to know him, but that he took note of you and made you his own. Only the gospel, friends, can set you free. Radically different from the world's way. Radically different from religion's way. A God who gives you his son so that he might draw near to you and you to him being known by a God who is real. Amen. Uh, Thank you. Uh, There's an article last year in the New York Times when 22 Christian refugees gathered in the basement of an apartment in Istanbul early on a Sunday afternoon in 2017. It was quickly clear to the reporter that this was no ordinary prayer meeting. Several of them had Islamic names. There was an Abdel Rahman and even a couple of Muhammads. Uh, Strangest of all, they jokingly referred to their host, one of the two Muhammads, as an Irhabi, a terrorist. If Bashir Muhammad took the joke well, it was because there was once some truth to it. Patrick Kingsley told the story last year in the New York Times. We've got a photo of Bashir on his rooftop in Istanbul. Today, Mr. Muhammad, age 25, has a cross on his wall, and he invites other recent converts to Christianity to weekly Bible meetings in his purple-walled living room in Istanbul. Less than four years ago, however, he fought on the front lines of the Syrian civil war for the Nusra Front, an offshoot of Al-Qaeda. He is, he says, a yihadi who turned to Jesus. It's a transition that surprised everyone, not least of all himself, because four years ago, he says, frankly, I would have slaughtered anyone who suggested converting to Christianity. Not only have his beliefs changed, but his temperament has too. Today, the reporter says his wife, Haveen Rashid, confirms with a hint of understatement that he is much better to be around today. The conversion of Muslim refugees to Christianity is not a new phenomenon, particularly in majority Christian countries in Europe. Converts sometimes stand accused of trying to enhance their chances of asylum by making it dangerous to deport them back to the places with a history of Islamist persecution. But Mr. Muhammad's particular experience doesn't fit easily into this narrative. He lives in a Muslim-majority country. He has no interest in seeking asylum in the West, and he treads an unlikely path followed by few former yihadis. He flirted with extremism since his teens. His cousin had taken him to hear a yihadist preacher as a 15-year-old, and he adhered to some of the most extreme interpretations of Islam. He says... Even the ones you haven't heard of, he says. And when the Syrian civil war broke out, broke out he, he went to war. He says, when I saw all these dead bodies piling up in the war, it made me believe all these things they said in the religious lectures. It made me seek the greatness of religion. In 2012, he joined the Nursery Front, 
uh, group fighter, uh, a group that seeks the establishment, in his words, of an extremist state. As a Nusra fighter, he continued to witness some extreme brutality. I won't get into the details, but he watched torture and he watched murder of his opponents. Uh, the group's propaganda made the violence seem tolerable. He says, quote, they used to tell us these people were enemies of God, and so I looked on the executions positively. Mr. Muhammad was an angry man whose temper frightened his relatives when he briefly returned home for his family's New Year's celebration in 2013. He was repulsed by what he saw as blasphemous celebrations whose origin lay outside the Islamic tradition. But back at the front, Mr. Muhammad finally began to question his organization's motives. He would scan government territory through his binoculars and he saw Syrian government soldiers executing prisoners using the exact same torturous methods that his own group had done in the name of God. And so he concluded, watching Muslims kill Muslims, that there was very little difference in behavior between them. He says, I went to Nusra in search of my God, but after I saw the killing, I realized there was something wrong. The next year, he and his wife fled the war entirely, leaving for Istanbul and joining around two and a half million other Syrians in exile in Turkey. But he was still a zealous Muslim. Uh, He prayed so loudly that his upstairs neighbors complained to the landlord. He still required his wife to cover her hair and neck and planned for her to wear the niqab, which is the full face veil that only shows the eyes. And yet, nevertheless, it was his wife who unwittingly prompted her husband's rejection of Islam. She had become sick. Serious illness. Doctors couldn't really identify what was going on, and it looked for a time that she wasn't going to make it. And he tried praying. He tried everything, and nothing was working. Finally, he talked to a cousin of his on the telephone in in Canada. And this cousin had himself become a follower of Jesus. And this cousin said, I want to get a bunch of Christians praying for your wife. Can I pray for her now? He said, no, absolutely not. He begged and pleaded. Eventually, he said, okay, go ahead and pray. And within days, she was perfectly well. And so he started questioning things. What's going on? Is there a spiritual reality to which I have been blind? And he sought out a Jordanian missionary, and he got a hold of a New Testament. And as he read about Jesus, he says, tremendous peace washed over me. I experienced this thing. What he was experiencing was the welcome of Jesus, and he saw it in the churches that he began attending as he saw it in the spirit of the others gathered. The prayers of the Christians, he said, seemed so much more generous than the prayer that he had prayed as a Muslim. For Bashir, for his wife, though, it was perhaps their dreams that sealed their conversion. As the couple began to wonder whether it was possible for a Muslim to leave Islam to follow Isa, to follow Jesus, uh, Mrs. Rashid said that she saw Jesus come to her in a dream, and he showed that he was able to part the waters and do the impossible. And she began to, to hesitantly at first believe in Jesus. And then as they were facing profound hunger and extreme poverty, Bashir says in a dream he saw Jesus, and Jesus Christ came to him in a dream and offered him food free of charge. He says it was the first time in his life that he and his wife had ever felt loved by God. Bashir says we used to worship in fear, but now everything has changed. For Bashir Muhammad, all this has nevertheless come at a high price, the writer says. His rejection of Islam makes him a target for his fundamentalist former allies, and he fears that they'll one day catch up with him 
And if they do, however, he reckons he has the greatest protection of all. He says this. He says, now I trust in a God who loves me. A God who loves him. A shepherd who knows his sheep and loves his sheep and lays down his life for his sheep. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for Bashir Muhammad and for Mrs. Rashid and for your great love to us sinners because you have favored us in our brokenness, in our shame, in all that's wrong in all of our life. Lord, you have chosen us and favored us and forgiven us and blessed us in Jesus because that's what you sent Jesus to do. And so, Father, we consecrate now to you the elements on this table, Lord, that you would preach good news to us that we might be the family of God for the sake of bringing the welcome of Jesus to this great city. It's through Christ that we pray. Amen.